survivors of the mass shootings in Uvalde, Texas, testified before Congress today in favor of legislation to address gun violence. Victims made emotional pleas for lawmakers to change gun policy. It's Wednesday, June 8th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Also this hour, the Democrat-led House panel investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol will launch a series of hearings tomorrow night. We're going to use whatever resources we can to make the presentations as compelling as possible. It's a pretty dramatic story and it has to be told in a dramatic way. We'll take a look at what to expect from the hearings. And Sheryl Sandberg's departure from Facebook is the end of an era for one of the tech world's most prominent women. She's played a large role in the company alongside CEO Mark Zuckerberg. It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Department of Justice is launching a review of the law enforcement response to the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. An 18-year-old gunman spent roughly 80 minutes inside Robb Elementary School. Law enforcement officers were on site, but they waited more than an hour before confronting and killing the shooter. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports on the DOJ's decision to enlist the help of former police chiefs and other experts. Attorney General Merrick Garland says hearts are broken over the loss of life at Robb Elementary School, but Garland says he hopes the critical incident review will help identify lessons learned and best practices for future mass shootings. Federal law enforcement experts are already on the ground in Texas. They plan to review documents, interview law enforcement officers, and consult with families of victims and survivors. The Justice the Justice Department has promised to make its findings public when its work is finished. The review is not a criminal investigation and will not result in any penalties for police. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Earlier today on Capitol Hill, 11-year-old Mia Cerillo brought home the horror of the Uvalde shooting. In a video message, she provided graphic accounts of trying to survive by smearing her friend's blood on herself and pretending to be dead. But 19 of her classmates and two teachers did not make it. Lawmakers on the House Committee on Oversight and Reform also heard from the mother of Zaire Goodman, a 21-year-old top supermarket employee who was shot multiple times in Buffalo. He survived, but Sonetta Everhart described the damage inflicted by the firearm used against her child, similar to the weapon used in Uvalde. To the lawmakers who feel that we do not need stricter gun laws, let me paint a picture for you. My son, Zaire, has a hole in the right side of his neck, two on his back, and another on his left leg, caused by an exploding bullet from an AR-15. Ten people were killed in Buffalo. Three were injured. The Biden administration is redirecting $10 billion in already appropriated COVID-19 funding in order to order more vaccines for an expected fall case surge. NPR Scott Detrow. The White House has warned that delays in another round of COVID funding would hurt the federal government's efforts to buy more vaccines and pills to treat the virus. But the urgency of earlier relief packages is long gone. In order to lock in vaccine and treatment purchases ahead of the fall, the administration is now rerouting some of those already appropriated funds. It'll spend $5 billion on new vaccines and slightly less on Paxlovid pills, which help alleviate COVID symptoms. A White House official warns that means the federal government will have to scale back purchases of at-home rapid tests and personal protective equipment, among other things. Scott Tetro, NPR News, Washington. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Massachusetts set a new record for overdose deaths last year. WBUR's Martha Biebinger has more on the numbers released by the Department of Public Health today. 2,290 people died after an overdose last year. DPH Commissioner Margaret Cook says that's 185 more lives lost than the year before. This very unfortunately is a 9% increase over 2020. And while 9% is significantly lower than the national trends, uh, it is problematic for Massachusetts and for our country. Cook says COVID stress is driving more substance use, as is fentanyl, a powerful opioid now found in fake pills, cocaine, and meth. Health leaders across the state say the numbers are a call to action. Governor Baker's proposed budget includes a half million dollars in new funding. It's not clear what the House and Senate plan to do. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. The president of Harvard University is stepping down. Lawrence Bacow announced today his plans to vacate the school's top job next summer. The 71-year-old says there's never a good time to leave, but now feels right and that he hopes to spend more time with his family. Bacow has led Harvard since 2018. He joins the presidents of Tufts, MIT, and Dartmouth in recently announcing plans to step down. The average price of regular gasoline in Massachusetts is now over $5 a gallon, and that has some people thinking twice at the pump. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer reports. A gallon of gas costs five twenty nine at this station in Brighton. Rachel Deinhardt says that's too much. I was literally just pumping gas thinking, do I fill up or do I just do half a tank? And I'm doing half a tank, five gallons. Deinhardt says her fiancé drives a lot for work. She worries about what high gas prices are doing to their budget. It's made us like save less money and kind of change our habits in other ways, like maybe going out to eat less and stuff like that. According to AAA, the average price of gas is the highest it's ever been in Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. If you're taking the commuter rail to the Celtics NBA Finals game tonight, you should be able to ride at home as well. The MBTA says it's providing late service from North Station during home games in the NBA Finals. The last departing trains will be held for 15 minutes following the end of the game. The latest commuter rail trains usually leave North Station by 11 p.m. The forecast increasing clouds with a chance of showers tonight. Lows will be around 62. Rainy day tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive info sent online can lead to identity theft. Learn more at LifeLock.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington, where the horror that unfolded two weeks ago in Uvalde, Texas, played out at the U.S. Capitol as survivors of that tragedy testified today before Congress. Survivors including fourth grader Mia Surio, who pre-recorded her testimony. She went to go lock the door, and he was in the hallway, and they made eye contact. That's the 11-year-old describing the moment her teacher learned there was an active shooter in the building. She also explained what happened next. Then he shot the little window, and then he went to the other classroom. There's a door between our classrooms, and he went through there and shot my teacher and told my teacher goodnight and shot her in the head. And then he shot... Some of my classmates. One of those classmates was next to Mia. I thought he was going to come back 
to the room, so I grabbed the blood and and put it all over me. Then she stayed quiet and called 911. Uvalde pediatrician Roy Guerrero described encountering Mia in the chaotic emergency room after the shooting. She was sitting in the hallway. Her face was still, still clearly in shock, but her whole body was shaking from the adrenaline coursing through it. He said her white Lilo and Stitch shirt was covered in blood. And Guerrero, in graphic detail, told the committee what it was like to see children who have been shot by an AR-15. Two children whose bodies have been pulverized by bullets fired at them, decapitated, whose flesh had been ripped apart, that the only clue at their identities was a blood-splattered cartoon clothes still clinging to them, clinging for life and finding none. Roy Guerrero and Mia Surio were just two of many witnesses who testified today, but their testimony echoed others affected by gun violence, and all of them said they wanted the same thing. Thoughts and prayers and calls for more gun control isn't enough. But making sure our children are safe from guns, that's the job of our politicians and leaders. So at this moment, we ask for progress. But I wish something will change, not only for our kids, but every single kid in the world because schools are not safe anymore. That's Miguel Cerillo, Kimberly Rubio, Roy Guerrero, and Lucretia Hughes. They and several others testified before Congress today in favor of legislation to address gun violence. I want to bring in NPR congressional correspondent Kelsey Snell. She has been following all this on Capitol Hill today. Kelsey, hey. Hi. The pain you hear there. The pain these pa- these families are experiencing is so fresh. Uh, their calls for action are explicit. How was their testimony received? You know, there have been very different reactions depending upon where you are on Capitol Hill. In the House, Democrats called this hearing, and tonight they are approving legislation that would meet nearly all of President Biden's requests, like banning high-capacity magazines and raising the minimum age to buy semi-automatic weapons. In the Senate, they're really focused on bipartisan negotiations on a narrow set of changes to gun laws. Plus, there's the political divide. Most Republicans I've talked to say the shooting Uvalde is horrifying, but they don't think changing gun laws is the right answer. The thing is, it's not just Uvalde. Uh, This past weekend alone, 15 people, at least 15 people, were killed in eight states in mass shooting incidents. Uh, Of course, there was Buffalo just days before Uvalde. Is Congress, either House, looking at gun violence as a whole? You know, that is also part of the political divide. Republicans, even those working on the Senate negotiations on that narrow bill, are focused on Uvalde, not the broader question of gun violence in the country. And I should say, lawmakers also heard from families of the victims in Buffalo, like Zanetta Everhart, whose son Zaire Goodman was shot and wounded there. She described the shrapnel that remains embedded in her son's body as she pleaded for a ban on assault rifles. If after hearing from me and the other people testifying here today does not move you to act on gun laws, I invite you to my home to help me clean Zaire's wounds so that you may see up close the damage that has been caused to my son and to my community. I should say almost all of the victims in Buffalo were black and Everhart talked about white supremacy, racism and class as part of the gun violence problem in the U.S., 
But the efforts in the Senate are tightly focused on addressing the circumstances that led to Uvalde, not to mass shootings more broadly. You know, Republicans are specifically focusing on things like mental health and school safety and changes to the background check system tailored to avoiding another school shooting. And negotiators in the Senate want a good deal quickly. They say they're moving in a positive direction, but that means staying narrowly focused on the things that can get enough Republican support to get 60 votes in the Senate. You know, we talk a lot about these this very narrow focus mm-hmm. that Republicans want. Are, are all Democrats on board with these very narrow proposals? Well, part of the reason we know how many of these Republicans who are open to gun law changes feel is because they are actively part of those talks. When it comes to more liberal Democrats, most are just kind of leaving the door open. I caught up with Elizabeth Warren today, and she told me she's very aware that people want more, that she wants more. But this is how she's describing her thinking. If we're stuck between nothing and something, something is better. You know, nearly every Democrat I speak to is also talking about this as a key motivating factor in the upcoming midterm elections. They want this to be a thing that brings voters to the polls. They say more Democrats in Congress means broader, bigger action. A really emotional day of testimony there on Capitol Hill. Uh, And Pierce Kelsey Snell, thanks for being there and covering it for us. Thanks so much for having me. Now we're turning our attention to another set of hearings, the Democratic-led House Select Panel investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Tomorrow night, in prime time, the committee will launch a series of hearings to reveal its findings. Here's committee member Adam Schiff. We're going to use whatever resources we can to make the presentations as compelling as possible. You know, we need to get across the danger to our democracy, how close we came to losing it, how many multiple lines of effort that were to overturn the election, how close they came to succeeding. It's a pretty dramatic story, and it has to be told in a dramatic way. Committee members say they'll be telling the fuller story of the siege through videos and images released to the public for the first time. With us with details is NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales. Hi, Claudia. Hi there. What are you expecting to hear tomorrow? Well, this is going to mark the committee's opening arguments, if you will, a broad overview of their investigative findings since the panel was launched nearly a year ago last summer. It's built on interviews with more than 1,000 witnesses, and they've obtained more than 100,000 documents. We'll see two witnesses appear before the panel tomorrow, a Capitol Police officer, Caroline Edwards, who's on duty the day of the attack, and a second witness is filmmaker Nick Quested, who is behind a documentary that captured members of extreme right-wing groups on the day of the siege. And as we heard Schiff say there at the top, the panel is going to use whatever resources possible to make this a compelling presentation. And NPR has independently confirmed reporting that former president of ABC, James Goldstone, has advised the committee on this. And then there are more hearings later this month. How will those differ? Right. So we're hearing of six hearings total scheduled for this month while the House is in session for the next two and a half weeks. They're going to hit on some of the major topics that we've gotten sneak previews on, such as a more expansive view of former President Trump's pressure campaign to overturn the election's results, former Vice President Mike Pence and his team's efforts to try and stop that behind the scenes, as well as the lack of response by Trump during the attack for 187 minutes. And we should also get some insight 
into some of these high-profile interviews the panel conducted behind closed doors. That includes voluntary appearances by daughter and former White House senior advisor Ivanka Trump and her husband, Jared Kushner. For example, we now know she tried to intervene several times on the day of the siege. Donald Trump Jr. is another witness who also appeared before the committee, too. And those closed-door interviews you just referenced, were those on camera? Will we ever see video of them? Yes, there is video. I talked to the committee's chairman, Benny Thompson, about that today. He said it's possible we will see that video of Ivanka Trump in one of these hearings this month. And then in addition to that, we could see other high-profile former Trump White House officials testify in person. But to be clear, Thompson said the panel is still making some final decisions here so the plans could shift. What is the panel saying it hopes to accomplish? Well, members have said repeatedly they learned that democracy was under much more of a threat than many realize. So they're going to delve into this organized nature of the attack, as well as the wider conspiracy around it, including the fake elector scheme they expanded on and the money that funded the attack and the buildup to it. And sources tell us that that final hearing, for example, which is a little over two weeks away, will be co-led by two panel members, Virginia Democrat Elaine Luria and Illinois Republican Adam Kinzinger and could focus on the flow of disinformation. Now, neither would comment about that, but I did talk to Luria about what is planned this month. Our goal as a committee is to paint a very clear picture with a contiguous thread from what started even you know, before the election in November of 2020 and built up and ultimately culminated on January 6th with violence. But for the American people to understand all of the factors that went behind that, I think that the day of January 6th, it was a symptom of something much larger. And she added she hopes Americans understand that these dangers continue to persist even today. And Claudia, have any committee members said, what is the end game? What do they hope to produce at the end here? Well, they're hoping to issue a final report later this year, perhaps in September, as well as a series of legislative recommendations. And we should note the panel is still interviewing witnesses and obtaining documents. For example, former Attorney General Bill Barr testified formally on Friday before the panel. So there's more evidence that could come in the next few weeks and months. That's NPR's Claudia Grisales. Claudia, thank you. Thank you much. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Ahead on All Things Considered, Sheryl Sandberg's departure from Facebook is the end of an era for one of the tech world's most prominent women and for the company which is attempting a transformation to the so-called metaverse. In business news, Massachusetts is in line for another sales tax holiday weekend this year. The question is, when will it be? Massachusetts law requires one tax-free weekend per year. Lawmakers have until June 15th to choose a weekend when the sales tax will be waived for most items under $2,500. If they miss that deadline, the State Department of Revenue steps in to make a decision by July 1st. Wall Street today, stocks closed lower. The Dow was down 269 points, or eight-tenths of a percent, at 32,911. NASDAQ was off seven-tenths of a percent, or 89 points, to 12,089. And the S&P 500 down one percentage point to end the day at 4116. It's 419. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. Sports, the Celtics will try to regain the lead in the NBA Finals tonight at the Garden. It's Game 3 of the Best of 7 series against the Golden State Warriors. The series is tied at one game apiece. Tip-off is at 9 p.m. In the forecast, increasing clouds with a chance of showers overnight. The lows will be around 62. Rainy day tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms. Some of those storms could produce some heavy rain. The highs will be around 71 degrees. Friday will be sunny and nice. The high is near 78 degrees. Right now, it's 79 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. On a Wednesday, it's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. For 14 years, Sheryl Sandberg has been the grown-up at Facebook. She's the sophisticated foil to Mark Zuckerberg's hoodie-wearing whiz kid. She's the one who seemed natural testifying before Congress. Senators, let me be clear. We are more determined than our opponents, and we will keep fighting. This fall, she's leaving Facebook. It's the end of an era for one of the most prominent women in business and for the company now known as Meta. NPR tech correspondent Shannon Bond has more and a note, Meta pays NPR to license NPR content. Long before Sheryl Sandberg was known for lean in, there was another term people used when talking about her. Kim Scott worked for Sandberg at Google in the mid 2000s. Sheryl is really exceptionally talented at understanding how to scale businesses. Scale, that's Silicon Valley jargon for growing a business from a startup into a powerhouse. Sandberg herself reportedly once said she felt she was put on earth to scale organizations. And she did that, first at Google, where she helped build a massively profitable advertising business, then at Facebook. In a podcast interview, Sandberg said she discussed scale with Mark Zuckerberg for months before accepting the chief operating officer job in 2008. By the time we worked together, we had really talked about kind of who we were, what we believed in, what we thought the potential was of Facebook to scale, how we would scale. On her watch, Facebook became the dominant social network and defined the business of targeted advertising on smartphones, all built on the rich trove of what the company knows about its users. And last year, it became one of the world's most valuable companies. Facebook has joined the Trillion Dollar Club. It's now the fifth member of the exclusive group, along with Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google's parent company, Alphabet. But it's also created what critics deride as a digital surveillance system that feeds on people's personal data and fosters discrimination, misinformation, and violence. Rashad Robinson leads the racial justice group Color of Change. For years, we have been deeply concerned about the role that 
Facebook plays in our society, that Facebook plays in our democracy, the impacts on our communities, and those concerns only become deeper and deeper as the days, weeks, months, and years go by. And the central figure in Facebook's controversial business model is Sandberg. When Zuckerberg brought her on, he was a 23-year-old Harvard dropout known for the motto, move fast and break things. Sandberg was 38 and as comfortable in the halls of Congress as in corporate America, thanks to stints at the Treasury Department and consulting firm McKinsey. Once she published Lean In, her manifesto encouraging women to climb the corporate ladder, she became the global girl boss. For the people she mentored, like Kim Scott at Google, Sandberg was a firewall protecting her from office politics. She had been kind of a umbrella for me. In other words, she had shielded me and the other people that we worked with from a lot of political nonsense. At Facebook, Sandberg played that umbrella role publicly. She took charge of policy, communications, relationships with regulators and lawmakers. Zuckerberg once described it as the things he didn't want to do. Katie Harbath worked in public policy at Facebook until last year. She was in some ways very much, you know, a co-CEO you know, in external terms <laughs> with Mark. It was one of the few companies, I think, that if it was the White House or Congress or you name it, they were perfectly fine having Cheryl be representing the company and not necessarily having the CEO. But Sandberg's focus on being that shield for Facebook and Zuckerberg eventually became a major line of attack. She was accused of deflecting and denying big problems, from Russian interference in the 2016 election to the Cambridge Analytica data scandal to the January 6th Capitol riot. Harbath says those criticisms came from inside Facebook as well. Part of her legacy will certainly be the fact that those things need to be paid attention to a lot sooner to make sure they don't become really big problems before you're ready to handle them. As instrumental as Sandberg was in making Facebook what it is today, even critics say she should not be blamed for all the company's problems. Robinson of Color of Change is no fan of Facebook, but he credits Sandberg for her work on racial equity, including advocating for a civil rights audit. But as Robinson sees it, there was only so much Sandberg could do. At the end of the day, the company is controlled by Mark Zuckerberg, who is chairman and CEO and majority shareholder. Over the past year, Zuckerberg has renamed the company Meta to signal its shift in focus to the metaverse, an immersive virtual world. The CEO is now the same age Sandberg was when he hired her. And one thing is clear. While Sandberg shared in Facebook's successes and failures, the future of Meta belongs to Zuckerberg alone. Shannon Bond, NPR News. The school year is coming to an end, and teachers across the country are trying to do something special for their kids. For students at a Montana school, a local end-of-year field trip means a visit to Yellowstone National Park. Jess Sheldahl with Yellowstone Public Radio reports. As she hikes her students down a forested trail, high school biology teacher Kim Popham says she's seen how current events are affecting them. Mental health-wise, it's pretty bad. Our kids are struggling and they get stressed out so easy. Little things trigger a lot more so than ever before. Popham thinks getting kids outdoors helps and Yellowstone is just 90 minutes from her school in Belgrade, Montana. All those hot springs out there and the microbial life that most likely is in them is 
I mean, it's just, I don't know, it's cool to me. I always tell them this is the trip of a lifetime. <laughs> Popham used to do research inside the park and is taking them across boardwalks on the Fountain Paint Pot Trail. Hot water erupts from the earth in bubbling and steaming pools that make the landscape look otherworldly. So the mud pots are like very bloop, I always say they're very bloopy. Bloop, bloop, bloop. Because you have some gas coming up through that that's just coming up through the uh, mud and it makes a cool sound. On the way into the park, students Ryland Schaefe and Autumn Eastwood say they're into it. They've just finished stressful advanced placement tests. So we're just like a little... <laughs> yeah, and the hiking and outdoors oh, part yeah. is going to be so sick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, National parks are just really cool. Bob Furman, coordinator of Yellowstone's educational programs, says the park, with its abundant wildlife, is a great place to relax and escape school-related stress. Students who might have trouble in the classroom excel in the outdoors many times. So giving them a chance to excel and feel good and build their confidence about themselves really is great. So that's, that's not what we're teaching. That's just what this place is able to teach. Biology teacher Kim Popham has been leading students on field trips to the park for 10 years now. She says she's seen Yellowstone bring students a lot of joy. I ask a lot of these guys and they rise to the occasion and they kill it. They do so much work for me and it's just fun to see them laugh and relax and have fun and realize how much they actually learned. For NPR News, I'm Jess Sheldahl in Billings, Montana. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 79 degrees in Boston at 429. Ahead on All Things Considered, we examine the impact a repeal of Roe would have on abortion access for minors. That's just ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, increasing clouds with a chance of showers overnight. The lows around 62 degrees. Rainy day tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms. Some of those storms may produce some heavy rain. The highs will be around 71. Friday will be sunny and nice, a high of 78. Mostly cloudy with a chance of rain on Saturday. The highs will be near 72 degrees. Again, right now it's 79 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. Proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com and Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity. Arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23. WalnutHillArts.org. The Small Business Administration wants to change the definition of what a small business is, which means things are going to get complicated. And the whole point of the set-asides was just to allow more small businesses to have the opportunity to compete against the bigger businesses for contracts. I'm Kai Rizdal. Step aside, because you might not get the set-asides. You get it? We'll tell you more next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. A California man was arrested early this morning near Justice Brett Kavanaugh's house in Maryland after threatening to kill the Supreme Court justice. Police say Nicholas Roski of Simi Valley was carrying a Glock 17 pistol, ammunition, a knife, and zip ties, among other items. 
The 26-year-old was arrested around 1 o'clock this morning outside Kavanaugh's home in a Washington suburb. Responding to that arrest today, Attorney General Merrick Garland says there is zero tolerance for those who threaten judges and justices. Police say Roski was upset the Supreme Court could overturn Roe v. Wade and loosen gun control laws. The bodies of 210 Ukrainian soldiers are being returned to their families. NPR's Nathan Rott tells us from Kyiv that most were killed in the southern port city of Mariupol. smearing her friend's blood on herself and pretending to be dead. But 19 of her classmates and two teachers did not make it. Lawmakers on the House Committee on Oversight and Reform also heard from the mother of Zaire Goodman, a 21-year-old top supermarket employee who was shot multiple times in Buffalo. He survived, but Zanetta Everhart described the damage inflicted by the firearm used against her child, similar to the weapon used in Uvalde. To the lawmakers who feel that we do not need stricter gun laws, let me paint a picture for you. My son, Zaire, has a hole in the right side of his neck, two on his back, and another on his left leg, caused by an exploding bullet from an AR-15. Ten people were killed in Buffalo. Three were injured. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A legislative conference committee looking to make mail-in and early voting permanent in Massachusetts has reached an agreement. The compromise is getting praise from Secretary of State Bill Galvin. He calls mail-in voting a great success when it was used earlier in the pandemic. He says there are many good reasons for someone to vote by mail. For instance, our primary is coming up on September 6th to comply with federal law. It has to be, it, that's the last day we could have held it, and it's the day after Labor Day. Well, many people might be away for Labor Day, so they may want to vote by mail to make sure their vote gets in. The compromise does not allow for same-day voter registration, as some lawmakers had wanted. It allows people to register up to 10 days before the election. Current law requires a 20-day cutoff. The full House and Senate have to agree to the compromise before it goes to the governor. A man was found dead this morning by workers at the Country Club in Brookline. A spokesman for the Norfolk County District Attorney says the 60-year-old man was working an overnight security shift as preparations continue for the U.S. Open at the golf club. The tournament is next week. An initial investigation suggests the man may have fallen from a deck that did not have railings. Evidence suggests that it was an accident. The medical examiner will conduct an examination. The victim's name has not yet been released. A heads up if you're trying to alert the city of Boston about a problem. Officials say they are experiencing problems with the city's 311 website and mobile app. Using a phone to call 311 still works. Tonight's Game 3 of the NBA Finals hasn't even tipped off at the Garden yet, but already a winner is being declared. Area bars and restaurants say the extended playoff run by the Celtics has been a boon to business. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports. On an ordinary Wednesday night in June, Porter's Bar and Grill in the West End has a staff of two. Tonight, owner Scott Nagara says he's going to have 12 people working. 
I know that the crowd is going to be into it. I would be in a lot of phone calls, and so I think there's going to be a bunch of people in tonight. So it's going to be a good, busy night. Uh, everybody's in a, in a good, positive mood. Everyone assumes that they're going to win tonight, so we'll see. Nogueira says the extra business is good for his employees and good for his bottom line. He expects the bar to make five to six times as much money tonight as it normally would without a playoff game. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Summer Term at Boston University. With a wide range of courses in math and science, including pre-med offerings in biology, chemistry, neuroscience, and physics. BU also offers over 50 math courses, statistics, calculus, probability, linear algebra, differential equations, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. Increasing clouds with a chance of showers tonight. The lows around 62. We'll have a rainy day tomorrow. Showers and thunderstorms. The highs around 71 degrees. Right now it's 80 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. As we await the Supreme Court decision that's likely to drop later this month, potentially overturning federal abortion protections across this country, we wanted to talk about some of the most vulnerable people who do seek abortions, minors. And we're going to start with the story of a young woman in Texas whom we will call B. That's her first initial. She's not ready for her family to know her story. B was 17 in her senior year of high school back at the end of 2020. She was at her partner's house one day when she had a sinking feeling. I took a few tests just in case. It was one of those things where I was paranoid and just wanted to make sure. And that's when I did find out I was pregnant. At first, she felt paralyzed. I kind of went robotic and shut everything out because I felt like my whole life was going to go down the drain because that's how society portrays it. But it wasn't just societal or family pressures. B says she had her own dreams and plans. She wanted to go to college. She wanted to build a career. And so she says she knew what she had to do. I immediately knew that I couldn't take care of it and abortion was the only choice for me. So just hours after finding out she was pregnant, B went online to look for nearby clinics. She called one up. And that's when I learned that I needed to get a parental consent. You see, in Texas and in most other states across the U.S., minors who are seeking abortions are required by law to have a parent involved. And if they don't want their parents to know or can't get their consent, 36 states have an alternative, a process called judicial bypass, meaning minors have to stand before a judge and prove that they are capable of making the decision to have an abortion alone. B went that route. I was just super scared because whenever you hear the word judge or hearing, it implies that you did something wrong. Before the court process, B had to get an ultrasound to prove that she was pregnant. 
after that, I had to meet with my doctor and make sure I would keep that doctor because in Texas, in order to get an abortion, you have to have the ultrasound and the abortion with the same doctor. A couple weeks later, she got a hearing, which she says probably lasted 30 minutes. But it felt like hours. B says that today she is really glad she made the decision to get an abortion. It's let her have a life she wouldn't be living otherwise. She got an apartment with her partner and they just got a dog. Right now I'm planning to go to college and I am working. I plan to have kids in a few years from now, just when I get everything settled and I know that I don't have to struggle with money. Judicial bypass is still possible in Texas, even under SB 8, which banned abortion after the sixth week of pregnancy. But the number of teenagers getting abortions there has decreased significantly since that law passed, in part because most teens don't realize that they are pregnant until after six weeks of pregnancy. They often have irregular periods or they might not check until they miss a period, which is at four or five weeks. That's Roseanne Maria Purim. She's executive director at Jane's Due Process, an organization that helps teenagers, including B, navigate judicial bypass and interstate travel to seek abortions. And then the other big reason is that teens can't travel as easily as adults can, especially if they're keeping their pregnancy confidential. So they have to explain missing school, missing work, being away from home for a day or two. And now, with more abortion restrictions likely coming to over half the country, Texas is a bellwether for what other states could see. Smaller windows for judicial bypass, further travel to get abortion care, and fewer resources for minors to get the support they need. I spoke with Roseanne Maria Purim about the challenges many minors face. Well, as we heard from B, she was grateful that there was even a process like judicial bypass so that she could avoid telling her parent about her abortion. At the same time, you know, B felt like she had to jump through all these different hoops to make a decision that she ultimately felt was hers to make. And on top of that, I understand that B had to personally deal with a bunch of delays, like her first doctor left the clinic she went to, so she had to start the process all over again. And then the Texas snowstorm hit last February, delaying her procedure again. So I'm wondering, how often do you hear stories about all these obstacles, all these road bumps from your clients? I would say, honestly, almost every case has something really complicated to it. And that's just because if you're a young person, you can't tell a parent. That's often because you're already living at other intersections of oppression. So like a lot of our youth might be working full time and in school, so they can't miss work for their abortion care because their family needs the money they're making from their job. Or we have youth who are in foster care, so they need to make sure that they're not going to get kicked out of their foster care placement because their placement found out they were pregnant and they're doing this all in secrecy. So I unfortunately would say that most of our clients have these kind of delays and intervening circumstances that make the process even harder. Hmm. Well, in states that completely ban abortion, assuming Roe v. Wade does get overturned, there will be no point to even have a judicial bypass process. But let me ask you, is there a chance that judicial bypass will also disappear in other states where, where abortion is still legal in some circumstances? So I think because um, minors are often vulnerable in the sense that they can't vote, they often don't have voices at the legislature, it will continue to be that anti-abortion lawmakers try to attack 
judicial bypass. And we just saw that happen in Florida um, within the past two years. They went from requiring parental notification to consent. So there's a solid effort to continue attacking minors and making judicial bypass harder, even in states where abortion might remain legal. And why is that? Why do you expect further attacks on the judicial bypass process, even in states where abortion is still legal? I think that our society stigmatizes sex, period, but it really stigmatizes sex and pregnancy for teenagers. There's just so much shame associated with getting pregnant if you're under 18. And I think it's an easy target that anti-abortion lawmakers have pursued. And unfortunately, even groups that support abortion access and support sexual and reproductive health haven't stood up hard enough for minors. I know that your organization helps teenagers with interstate travel out of Texas for abortions. And now the latest legal development near Texas concerning abortion seems to be a ban going into effect in Oklahoma. How might that ban affect the clients that you're serving now? So yeah, when you think about travel, a lot of people drive. Um, And so Mm -hmm. Oklahoma was the closest state for many people. It wasn't always a great option for youth because they do have judicial bypass and it can be complicated to get a bypass in Oklahoma, but we were referring youth there. So now you have to go even a state further. Um, And for some youth, that's just going to be impossible, especially if you think about driving from like central Texas or the Rio Grande Valley all the way up to Colorado. That's just too far for many teens. Yeah, I can imagine so. I mean, that puts teenagers in Texas in a really tough spot. So how can Jane's due process help teenagers who find themselves in that situation? So we'll always be here to provide information and to let teens know their legal rights. But I believe that to a certain degree, you know, they're being trapped. They're being forced into pregnancies against their will. And if it's happening here in Texas, it's going to happen all over the country. So an entire generation is going to lose a right that the rest of us have enjoyed for 50 years. So I'm really concerned about the impact on teens. Yeah. Roseanne Maria Purim is the executive director of Jane's Due Process. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The NHL Eastern Conference Finals are now tied two games each. That's after the Tampa Bay Lightning beat the New York Rangers 4-1 to last night. He puts it right on the stick of Kucherov again, and he scores! The Lightning are going for their third straight Stanley Cup title, and hockey fans have seen Tampa battle back a lot in recent years. Emily Kaplan certainly has. She covers hockey for ESPN, and she's with us now live. Hi, Emily. Hi, Sasha. How are you? I'm good. And Emily, just a few days ago, the Lightning were down two games to none. They really seem to specialize in comebacks. They really do. You know, this is they're going for their third straight Stanley Cup, which is pretty incredible in the salary cap era, which is even the playing field. The NHL now has 32 teams, which is watered down the market. So the fact that they've been able to do this year after year and discount so many people um, is honestly historic to watch. Emily, you recently wrote that this team has, quote, a level of trust and confidence that they can get through any opponent. It sounds like you think they have something special. They do. Um, I think a lot of it begins with the construction of their team. Their general manager, Julian Buisbois, did a very good job of finding the right character guys that can plug in. Their coach, John Cooper, is amongst the best in the league at at X's and O's, but also, again, getting that buy-in. They've got the best goaltender in Andre Vasilevsky, one of the top defensemen in Vector Hedman. They've got some star forwards, but really it's that mentality to back checking and defense and those intangibles that allow them just to win these games when again a lot of people are counting them out 
So game five is tomorrow in New York. It's Tampa Bay versus New York. The series is now tied up. What do you think fans can expect to see? I think they can expect a really tightly contested battle. Home ice advantage has really mattered in these playoffs more than any other year, it seems. And so I do think that the Rangers are going to be energized by the crowd at Madison Square Garden. Um, but right now, both teams' energy levels are at the right place because entering the series, the Tampa Bay Lightning had nine days rest between their last series because they swept their last opponent. And it was hard for them to get their legs at first. The Rangers, who are a young team, definitely had their legs. And now things are even. So um, it really could go anyone's way. I know a lot of sports reporters have different feelings about predicting, but are you comfortable rating their chances at taking the third straight Stanley Cup in your view? You know, before the season, I did make a prediction that I picked the Colorado Avalanche to win the Stanley Cup, but I did have Tampa Bay Lightning emerging in the East. And that's the way that I think it's trending. The Colorado Avalanche already punched their ticket after sweeping the Edmonton Oilers in the Western Conference Final. And I just think that that grizzled Tampa Bay experience, they realized that their Stanley Cup window is closing. That third Stanley Cup in a row is so historic in the Stanley Cup era that I do think that they have that savvy to get past the Rangers. And Emily, I have a question because you're a sideline reporter on ESPN covering these games. Sometimes in the middle of these tense games, you have to go interview these head coaches. Do you generally find them receptive to that? Do you cringe a bit when you walk up to ask questions? Or what is that like asking in the middle of a game? You know, it's challenging because I have a, such a tight window. And my biggest fear is having that interview run over a goal and robbing the fan <laughs> of that moment. Uh, at the same time, our goal is to grow the game. We always talk about that in hockey. And I think one of hockey's biggest issues has always been accessibility. So if I can get a coach to explain something that we're seeing better or give fans something to look for, I think that's really cool. And I think the coaches are pretty receptive to that. That's ESPN's Emily Kaplan. Emily, thank you. Thanks, Sasha. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 80 degrees in Boston at 449. Ahead on All Things Considered, China's grueling work culture in the tech industry has contributed to a sense of exhaustion and despair. But there's been backlash, which the Chinese government sees as a social and political threat. That's just ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. The Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. More at themusicemporium.com. And Building Restoration Services, hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems. BuildingRestorationServices.com. Drivers around Lowell and Chelmsford can expect some slowdowns starting this afternoon through tomorrow. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation has closed some lanes at two points leading to the Lowell Connector inbound. The left lanes will be closed on the ramps from Route 3 north to Route 495 north to the connector. Closures are scheduled to last until 5 a.m. tomorrow for emergency bridge repairs. Hi, it's Robin Young. When we started planning our June on-air fundraiser, we asked, how could we make it special? Maybe all the money in half the time? We've done that. All the money in the day? How about all the money without any interruption? 
There it is. Because of all the news, we're going to bring you WBUR uninterrupted by fundraising, but we still need to meet our goal. We can when you give monthly at WBUR.org. Simple, powerful. Give now. Thank you. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We like to work hard here in the U.S., 9 to 5, often longer. In China, they have got 996. That's 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. And it's a pretty typical routine for Chinese tech workers in cities like Shenzhen, known as China's Silicon Valley. And that grueling work culture has contributed to a sense of exhaustion and despair. It's often expressed in online short videos and blogs. Now there's a backlash, sort of China's version of the Great Resignation. This movement is known as Sung, and the Chinese government sees it as a social and political threat. Here's Gregory Warner, host of the NPR podcast Rough Translation, speaking with NPR's Beijing correspondent Emily Fang. I was speaking to Emily about a trip she took to Shenzhen to see this exhaustion movement up close. In a very unlikely place to find exhaustion, a rock show. So there were probably about 200 people who showed up, which is a good crowd for a Thursday. And one thing that really struck me is Everyone was sitting down at the beginning of the show. The live house had set up all these chairs lining the perimeter of the room, and people were just kind of plopped there, looking at their phones, sleeping. (laughs) What? A lot of people with their heads on other people's shoulders. And so I started talking to some of these people, like, why would you come all the way to a rock show a live house, and then just take a nap. And everyone was like, well, I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) Listening to Emily tell the story of this concert, it almost seemed like being exhausted in this crowd was like a membership card in a club known as Song. Song is an actual Chinese character, which can be combined in various phrases. It just means depressive or tragic, in general, sad. The fact that people feel that their work is pointless, they're simply going through the motions to just get through the day every day at their jobs. The show slowly picks up. Trip Fuel is the last act to perform. And most of their fans are between the ages of like 20 to 30-somethings. A lot of them are working white-collar jobs, which might be prestigious, but don't often pay that much in China. And even though labor laws are starting to get a little bit more strict, it's still really common to work overtime, unpaid, basically every night of the week. So they have no personal time of their own. They're often only children, so they've got financial burdens to make sure that they can take care of their older relatives. The band members feel this. You know, they're struggling with the same issues, but I think that's also what connects them to their fans. Their lyrics are about watching your life happen. Like being a passenger in your own life and watching your dreams slowly die. So the lead singer of the band, his name is Manager Chen. That's his stage name and his actual job title. He is a manager. He manages financial products and derivatives at a provincial bank. 
Towards the end of their act, he he pauses in between two songs and he says, thank you all for coming to his fans. Thank you to the band members, but also thank you to my bank managers for letting me be here. And everyone kind of laughs and applauds because they like that's part of a shtick. A bunch of tech workers nodding off at a math rock show may not seem like a threat to the Chinese state. But late last year, the Chinese government resolved to suppress song culture online. Notable anti-work influencers have since had their social media accounts shut down or their content censored. In what China calls a positive energy campaign, Song has been accused of corroding the values of Chinese youth. Then you are spreading negative energy. Aris is a 26-year-old high school teacher in Hubei province. We're not using her full name because she didn't want to be associated with Song culture. Eris says there's something shameful around sharing how exhausted you are. When you say that you are tired, um, it's like uh, you might be weaker than others or you might not be suitable for the job. Not just the job you're hired for, but the bigger job of building China. Like uh, you could see the faster development of China and the, the, the propeller, the propeller behind the development is each Chinese people's efforts. It's a principle that was ingrained in Aris since primary school. The new China needs everyone to work hard to build up the country. But though she wasn't admitting it, Aris was really exhausted. As hardworking as she was as a teacher, it wasn't the career she wanted for herself. Her parents had pressed her into getting her teaching degree. Traditionally, it's considered to be a great job for a for a girl to become a teacher, it means you have more time to take care of your children and your family. Our parents bring us up, so we should be grateful for their efforts. Um, so when they are old, we should also take care of them. Aris had other dreams for what she wanted for her career, but she felt she had a duty to obey her parents. So I tried to be a good teacher. And I am aware that I have to work hard for my students and for my responsibility. And if the bad feelings come, then let it come and just don't forget to do what I need to do right now. But Aris couldn't help but be exposed to quitting influencers on the internet thanks to her meme-savvy high school students. This was before China's suppression of song culture. And then the pandemic hit, and Aris started to rethink her own priorities. Why had she been working so hard and so unhappily? You will never know what might happen to you next moment. So if I die right now, I would feel very angry because I didn't leave for Aris right now. And so recently, Aris made a big decision. I decided to quit to leave teaching and enroll in law school. I submitted my letter of quit. But she wasn't going to tell her parents, or not yet. When I am admitted, I will tell them that's my plan. You'll get into law school, and that's when you'll call them up and say, Yeah. (laughs) It's risky, but to her surprise, making that choice has filled her with nothing but positive energy. You can hear more of Eris's story on the Rough Translation podcast. It includes a viral video of a thief who helped inspire her and millions of others to re-examine their notion of hard work. Rough Translation has a new season about workplace cultures around the world and what they reveal about our own work lives. 
in Uvalde, Texas, the initial shock of the massacre at Robb Elementary School has begun to subside. In its place, families of the victims are beginning to grapple with their anger. Uvalde families speak out tomorrow on Morning Edition on your radio or try asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from USPS, serving every address in the country, more than 160 million nationwide. USPS, delivering for America. Learn more at usps.com delivering. And from Fisher Investments Wealth Management, offering guidance on retirement income, social security, and estate planning. More at fisherinvestments.com. Clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center. When it comes to cancer, it matters where you start and when you start. Don't wait. Visit youhaveus.org. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUA-Brewster, streaming at WBUR.org, and when you ask your smart speaker to play WBUR, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I think it really has the potential to be a fundamental game changer in this second half of the pandemic. Moderna has announced a new version of its COVID vaccine that appears to provide strong protection against the Omicron variant. It's Wednesday, June 8th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have details of the new vaccine. Also ahead, the indictment of multiple former Proud Boys leaders pins seditious conspiracy charges on them for their alleged role in January 6th, but it barely registered a response on Proud Boys social media. And about 100 victims of former gymnastics Dr. Larry Nasser are suing the FBI. They say the agency mishandled complaints about Nasser in 2015, allowing him to continue his abuse until his arrest. It's 5.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill heard testimony today from the families and survivors of two devastating mass shootings last month. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports today's hearing before a House panel comes as Congress works towards a compromise on stricter gun laws in the U.S. A fourth grader told the House Oversight Committee that she was forced to play dead in order to survive the attack at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas last month. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says these accounts give Congress all the more reason to explore every realistic opportunity to get something real done. We know we won't get everything we want. But we have a moral obligation right now to try and get something meaningful, something meaningful done for the American people in the name of those who have died. The House panel also heard from experts, including a pediatrician who treated victims of the attack on Robb Elementary School. 
Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The White House appears to be playing down the fact some regional leaders are not attending this week's Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles. Speaking aboard Air Force One en route to the summit with President Joe Biden, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan briefed reporters what he expects to be some of the key outcomes of the meeting. Much of the substance of this summit is designed to tackle the challenges this region is facing head on. And in five areas, we will have significant substantive deliverables in food, health, in climate, in economic growth, and on migration. On the topic of migration, leaders are expected to agree on a call to action supporters hope will guide countries as they host people fleeing from violence and persecution. Sullivan said even though Mexico's president and the leaders of several Central American countries have declined to attend, senior officials will be there. Primary elections took place Tuesday in more than half a dozen states with notable results, particularly in California. More from NPR's Domenico Montanaro. San Francisco voters overwhelmingly recalled District Attorney Chase Bodine, who was part of a national wave of progressive prosecutors who sought alternatives to jail time for nonviolent drug-related crimes. But he was recalled by 20 points. In Los Angeles, billionaire developer Rick Caruso, a former Republican who became a Democrat this year, finished narrowly ahead of Democratic Congresswoman Karen Bennett. Caruso is pledging to increase funding for the police and decrease the homeless population. Caruso and Bass will face off one-on-one in a runoff this November. Both elections are warning signs for Democrats in two major American cities facing high crime and homelessness about the limits of progressive governance. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today amid continued choppy trading. The Dow dropped 269 points. The Nasdaq was down 88 points. The S&P 500 closed down 44 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A proposal that would allow undocumented immigrants in Massachusetts to obtain driver's licenses is a step closer to becoming law. Today, the House voted to override Governor Baker's veto of the legislation. On this matter, 119 members voted in the affirmative, 36 in the negative. The item stands despite the objection of His Excellency the Governor. The Senate is expected to vote to override the veto tomorrow, which would make the bill law. Governor Baker says the measure would increase the risk that non-citizens would be registered to vote. Supporters reject that claim and say the bill would make roads safer. U.S. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are calling on President Biden to issue an executive order to protect abortion rights. The Massachusetts Democrats and other lawmakers are asking that federal agencies create a plan for how they will increase access to abortions and ensure accurate public education about reproductive care. The letter recommends easing travel to a provider and regulating menstrual tracking apps. The U.S. Supreme Court appears poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. Harvard's president, Lawrence Bacow, will step down next summer. Bacow oversaw the university's pandemic response, a reckoning over its ties to slavery, and a surge in the university's wealth. WBUR's Max Larkin reports. Bacow is no stranger to higher education in Greater Boston. He has three advanced degrees from Harvard, and he served as the chancellor at MIT and the president of Tufts before coming back to Harvard five years ago. 
His tenure as president was unusually short but eventful. Two years ago, Bacow had to send students home as COVID-19 struck. He presided over Harvard's defense of its affirmative action policies, soon to go before the Supreme Court. And he oversaw a 40% increase in the university's endowment. Bacow says he plans to spend more time with family. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Fans will see a lot of green at the TD Garden tonight, including at the concession stands. In celebration of the Celtics' first home game of the year's NBA Finals, the Garden will be selling a variety of green-themed foods and drinks. Items include a shamrock sundae and hot dogs and burgers served on green buns. Tip-off tonight between the Celtics and the Golden State Warriors is at 9 p.m. In the forecast, increasing clouds with a chance of showers overnight. The lows will be around 62 degrees. Rainy day tomorrow, the high is around 71. Friday will be sunny, nice, the high is around 78. Right now it's 79 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Tomorrow, the January 6th House Select Committee begins its widely anticipated public hearings about the planning of the violent attack on and in the nation's Capitol building. But earlier this week, there were more developments in the government's attempt to hold people accountable for that day. The leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, and four other leaders of that violent far-right group were indicted on the serious charge of seditious conspiracy. All this comes as the threat of political violence in the U.S. continues to evolve in dangerous ways. NPR's Adette Youssef covers domestic extremism and joins us. Hi, Adette. Hi there. Adette, the Department of Homeland Security periodically assesses what it calls the country's threat environment. It does that in what's called the National Terrorism Advisory System Bulletin. The most latest one was issued yesterday. What did it say? Well, Sasha, it says that we remain in a heightened threat environment and one that could become even more complicated in the coming months. You know, these bulletins are always kind of vague. Um, They don't always name specific threats or the events that might trigger the violence. But in my reporting, Sasha, experts have raised a number of upcoming events that could potentially light that fuse. You know, one of them, of course, is the midterm elections in the fall. But we're also now looking at the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade this month. And just today, we learned of the arrest of an armed man outside Justice Kavanaugh's house. Right. And Odette, when we look at this increased legal crackdown on the Proud Boys leader this week, is it believed that that's likely to have any effect on in coming months on the risk of more political violence? You know, it's really hard to say. Um, extremism researchers have told me that it is important that these prosecutions happen. You know, for many years, Sasha, the Proud Boys engaged in violent street activity in several states without any real legal consequences. And so finally demonstrating accountability for some of these alleged crimes is important. But at the same time, if we continue to focus on organized extremist or paramilitary groups like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers to get a handle on the extremist threat, we're ignoring the reality that extremism has become much more mainstream today. I spoke with Cassie Miller of the Southern Poverty Law Center, and she likens that to willfully putting on blinders. This is really something that has seeped into the political waters. A lot of the ideas that were once 
really within the purview of the extreme right are part of the Republican Party now. And so that is radicalizing a lot of people. And that is more difficult to solve. And Sasha, survey after survey has shown this to be the case. We're seeing a far larger proportion of Americans embrace the idea that violence may be the only way to settle our political differences. And Odette, if these views are becoming so mainstream in the general public, it seems that would make it much more difficult to monitor and prevent violence domestically. Yes, that job has become more challenging, uh, especially since January 6th, where, you know, you'll recall that many journalists and extremism researchers were sounding the alarm well in advance of that attack, saying that individuals and organizations were openly planning for violence on social media platforms. And yet we saw law enforcement and federal bodies woefully unprepared that day. Well, since January 6th, these elements have largely moved away from mainstream social media platforms and toward more private platforms or channels. So the monitoring is more challenging and the nature of the threat is also more complicated. You know, as more Americans consider violence as a means to achieve political goals, we really could be dealing with a much more diffuse set of actors here. And as we saw with recent acts of targeted violence in Buffalo and even Uvalde, identifying these individuals beforehand is very challenging for law enforcement. Odette, quickly, this seems pretty bleak. Any solutions ahead? Well, conflict scholars believe that the way out is through the work of local actors, not necessarily law enforcement, to get trained in bystander intervention, de-escalation, and fostering dialogue within their communities. That's NPR's Odette Youssef. Thank you. Thank you. Now to the ongoing fight against the coronavirus. Today, the drug company Moderna announced what could be an important advance in the nation's quest to live with COVID-19. Moderna says a new version of their vaccine appears to provide strong and potentially long-lasting protection against the Omicron variant. NPR Health correspondent Rob Stein is here. Hey, Rob. Hey, Mary Louise. Well, this would be great since the existing vaccines have been less than perfect against Omicron. How would this new vaccine work? The company took its original vaccine and added another strand of genetic code programmed to target the Omicron variant to create what's known as a bivalent vaccine, meaning it protects against two strains of the virus at the same time, in this case, the original strain and the highly contagious Omicron variant. And the company says that a study involving hundreds of people who had already received three shots of the original vaccine showed that getting another shot with the new vaccine significantly boosts antibodies that can neutralize Omicron. Here's Dr. Paul Burton, Moderna's chief medical officer. So I think it really has the potential to be, you know, a fundamental game changer in this second half of the pandemic, as we've now gone into, you know, this rapid evolution of more and more infectious subvariants of Omicron. So it's really important. Because it could shore up waning immunity and give people stronger protection specifically against Omicron, the variant driving the pandemic. The hope is the bolstered immunity could reduce the number of people who get mild breakthrough infections as well as severe disease, hopefully long enough to get people through another wave of infections expected next winter. And Burton says potentially even long enough for the vaccine to become an annual shot like the flu vaccine. Rob, I hear a lot of uh, coulds, and we hope this will happen 
in, right. in the answer there. How solid is Moderna's data on this? Yeah, good, good, good question. All we have at the moment is what Moderna released in a statement and told reporters during a briefing this morning. And the reaction, honestly, has been kind of mixed. Some independent scientists are optimistic, like Deepa Bhattacharya. He's an immunologist at the University of Arizona. It sounds great because, you know, the Omicron is working and the update is working. You're getting more antibodies against Omicron than if you just use the same old thing again. And so that's going to buy us more protection. It broadens out the immune response. It covers more territory of what the virus may do next. But other scientists are more pessimistic. They say the new vaccine's added protection looks kind of modest, and there's no way to know how long it would last. One big caveat is that the vaccine targets the original version of Omicron, hmm. which has now been replaced by other super contagious subvariants. I talked about this with Dr. Peter Hotez at the Baylor College of Medicine. Now we're facing very different variants from Omicron, BA212, BA4, BA5. And I don't see anything here to make me believe that boosting with Omicron would be superior to continued boosting with the original lineage. Since those new Omicron subvariants are even better at sneaking around the immune system than the original Omicron. Oh, yeah. And the virus, as, as we just heard, continues to change so fast. So who decides what happens next? Moderna is planning to ask the Food and Drug Administration to authorize this new booster, which the company says could be ready just in time for another booster campaign the federal government is already planning in the fall to protect people against another surge expected next winter. The FDA is gathering experts together at the end of the month to decide another, whether another booster is needed, who should get it, and what it should be. Pfizer and BioNTech are also developing a new version of their vaccine targeted at Omicron, and the National Institutes of Health is studying several possibilities. So we'll have to see which one they end up landing on. Yes, we will. NPR's Rob Stein, thanks. Sure thing. India is facing a chorus of criticism from the Muslim world this week. That's after a spokeswoman for India's ruling party made derogatory comments about the prophet Muhammad. India is ruled by Hindu nationalists, and hate speech there against minority Muslims has been on the rise. Now there's an international backlash. And Pierre's Lauren Freyer reports from Mumbai. As a spokeswoman for India's ruling party, Nurpur Sharma was notorious for shouting matches on TV. No, 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 Absolutely senile old man. You asked me a question. Absolutely senile old man. In which she insults fellow panelists. Last month, when she insulted the Prophet Muhammad on TV, Indian Muslims protested in the streets. <laughs> But their voices were ignored, and some of them were even beaten by police. It was only when Gulf countries, the UAE, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and many others, lodged official complaints that Prime Minister Narendra Modi took action. Big news coming in, Nupur Sharma. The His Bhartiya Janata Party suspended its spokeswoman and expelled another official. Now, the Gulf is home to 8 million Indian migrant workers, and India relies on those countries for oil and gas imports. Hassan El-Hassan is a foreign policy expert in Bahrain. So there definitely is a lot of outrage, very visible on social media, but it's also real in conversations with, with real people. Even though Modi's Hindu nationalists have long been accused of Islamophobia, El-Hassan says... It's something the Prophet Muhammad sort of takes it to a whole new level. And it becomes a transnational or international issue 
one that could imperil Modi's foreign policy. Yamini Ayar is a political scientist in Delhi. She's watched the rise of Modi's Hindu nationalists and with it abuse of India's minorities. Even after this backlash, some Indians still admire the former spokeswoman and see her as gutsy. Uncivility is not frowned upon. It's indeed encouraged. It's part of the process of uh, laying the firm foundations of the majoritarian politics. Um, and the BJP thought they could get away with it. But IR says satellite TV and social media have made it impossible for any government to have one message for domestic consumption and another internationally. So what happens inside India now no longer stays here. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Mumbai. President Biden came into office promising to be tough on Saudi Arabia. He's called the country a pariah because of its human rights abuses. Recently, though, he has done an about-face, and oil is a big part of the reason why. Listen tomorrow afternoon to hear more. You can tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 79 degrees in Boston at 519. Ahead on All Things Considered, the congressional hearings on the January 6th insurrection are being staged for TV consumption very differently than in the past. Most networks are taking them live. Fox News is the exception. That story and more ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Globe Live. Returning to the Paramount stage for two nights of nonfiction storytelling from Boston Globe's journalists and celebrating the Globe's 150th anniversary with the writers, storytellers, and personalities covering and convening the Boston community June 11th and 12th. Learn more at globe.com slash globe live. In business news, the vote by shareholders at Spirit Airlines on whether to accept one of the buyout offers for the carrier has been postponed. Spirit said today it's delaying Friday's vote for three weeks to give the company board more time to look at the offers from JetBlue and Frontier. JetBlue increased its offer earlier this week and says it welcomes the delay. Frontier did not comment immediately. JetBlue has a major hub at Boston's Logan Airport. Wall Street stocks closed lower today. The Dow down 269 points, or eight-tenths of a percent, to close at 32,911. NASDAQ was off seven-tenths of a percent, or 89 points, to close at 12,089. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. In the forecast, increasing clouds with a chance of showers overnight. The lows around 62. A rainy day tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms. Some of those storms may produce heavy rain. The highs will be around 71 degrees. Friday will be sunny and nice. The highs around 78. Right now it's 79 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Congressional hearings are often designed to be spectacles. Lawmakers pose questions with flourish. They bring whiteboards or props. They call witnesses to give dramatic testimony. But the organizers of the hearings into the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol have taken unusual steps to win people's attention. A former TV news exec is producing the hearings, which starts
there tomorrow. NPR Media correspondent David Fokenflick is here. Hey, David. Mary Louise. All right, what kind of spectacle are we going to see tomorrow night? Well, it'll, it seems as though it'll start pretty conventionally. You'll have the chairman, Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi, and uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, Republican from Wyoming, give their opening statements. And then we're going to see unfold what is supposed to be kind of a television spectacle. Uh, you'll have two witnesses, a guard and a documentary filmmaker there that day. And we're supposed to see a narrative being presented with something of a narrative storytelling arc. Uh, think of 2020, Dateline uh, NBC, with not just moments, but uh, a story that has dramatic uh, tension building up with revelations along the way using real footage, using real documents, using apparently uh, previously undisclosed White House official photographs from that day to piece together a narrative of what the chairman has said he believes was an attempt to essentially thwart democracy. What's the thinking behind presenting it this way? Well, there's a desire to make sure this punches through that it's compelling on TV. There's a worry that it will be politicized as it has already been dismissed by House Republicans and allies of former President uh, Donald Trump or, or simply ignored. And they want it to burst through. You know, if you think back to the impeachment of the former President Trump, he was impeached not once but twice. It did galvanize a lot of media attention, get a lot of TV attention, but it was confusing for a lot of folks. In this case, the committee brought in the former president of ABC News. He mentioned a news executive. This guy was at the top, James Goldston. He worked with the committee to make sure it told its story factually, a first story first broken by Axios. Goldstone has told associates he sees this as a civic duty, that insurrection should not be seen as a partisan question, but but one of, of good citizenship. And he has promised the committee it will all be factually based. Factually based, but totally packaged for TV and by a TV news exec, as you just nodded to, um, are the networks going to carry it live? Well, with one major exception, yes, they're all going to carry this live uh, starting uh, tomorrow night, Thursday night, 8 p.m., one of the most watched shows for conventional television, uh, excuse me, time slots for conventional television uh, and on one of the biggest days. As large an audience as possible, you know, hoping things will go viral, but hoping to capture and define the narrative about what these findings mean. Yeah, although isn't the one exception that's not carrying it live. It's a big one, right? It's Fox. It's the biggest one for cable. And they're, what they're doing is they are covering it. They're shifting their coverage to uh, the Fox Business Network, a sister channel that is much less watched uh, in prime time uh, and allowing, you know, their major uh, stars of Fox News, Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, to continue unabated. And that's important. You know, Sean Hannity, one of the former President Trump's uh, closest advisors, Tucker Carlson, perhaps the most influential uh, proponent other than Trump of the idea that uh, the 1-6 insurrection is, was really a question of a protest that got out of hand and that the implications aren't all that dire, often presenting uh, untrue narratives and untrue facts to the public. Just briefly, again, for people watching Fox, is there a risk that people will see the counter-programming but not the hearing itself? Well, anybody who wants to see it can on all of the channels and indeed on, on Fox Business and on streaming. But there's a real question of whether core uh, Trump voters, uh, core Fox viewers, often the same people, and the people that they've helped put into office right. uh, will be able to sidestep or dismiss what is some pretty compelling and inconvenient right. truths about what happened that day. And Piers David Folkenflik, thanks. You bet. Olympic gymnasts Simone Biles, Allie Raceman, and about 100 others were sexually abused by former Olympic gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser. 
Now, they're seeking more than $1 billion in damages from the Department of Justice. They claim the FBI's failure to properly investigate Nassar seven years ago allowed his abuse to continue for more than a year. Michigan Radio's Kate Wells reports. If it feels like the Nasser case never ends, you should try being Kaylee Lorenz. I still feel like we're living in this, like, nightmare. Is this seriously still, like, happening? Lorenz is 23 now, but this started for her as a 13-year-old girl doing gymnastics in Michigan. That was when Nassar began sexually abusing her under the guise of medical treatment. Her last appointment with him was when she was a junior in high school. She doesn't even have to look up the date. February 2nd of 2016. That was a year after the FBI had already knew in 2015. Here is what the FBI knew in 2015. USA Gymnastics had already reached out to the FBI field office in Indianapolis, where USAG is based. They said three USA gymnasts may have been sexually abused by the team's doctor, Larry Nassar, when they were underage girls. But the agents in Indianapolis barely investigated. They didn't even interview all the victims. Their entire investigation amounted to some emails and eight pages of notes, according to the Office of the Inspector General. Then the Indianapolis field office told USA Gymnastics that they would refer the case to Michigan, but that never happened either. People who engage in that kind of gross misconduct have no place in the FBI. That's FBI Director Christopher Wray testifying before Congress last year about the FBI's mishandling of the case. Because the FBI didn't stop him, Nasser was able to keep abusing an estimated 100 women and girls for more than a year before his eventual arrest. Director Ray apologized to them. And I'm especially sorry that there were people at the FBI who had their own chance to stop this monster back in 2015 and failed. And that is inexcusable. It never should have happened. And we're doing everything in our power to make sure it never happens again. The former FBI agents involved in the case are not going to be criminally prosecuted. But these new claims are happening in the federal government's version of civil court, where claimants have to prove that they have suffered because of a federal employee's negligence. A small group of about 13 survivors filed a claim in April, and now roughly 100 others are doing the same, seeking total damages of more than a billion dollars. A spokeswoman for the FBI declined to comment on today's filing. But for those like Kaylee Lorenz, it's one more fight in what feels like a never-ending battle. My dad literally said it to me this morning, was like, why, why put yourself through this again? She knows people hear $1 billion and they think that's the motivation here. But Kaylee says this has been years of her life through high school, college, young adulthood that have been defined by this. This can't happen again. And if people aren't held accountable for it, whether there's money involved or not, it will keep happening because people can get away with it. And if we don't do something, more little girls and little boys will continue to get hurt. It is one thing to hold big public hearings or have an investigation or even get an apology and promises of reform. But Kaylee Lorenz and others feel this may be their best option to try to make that change happen, even at the FBI. For NPR News, I'm Kate Wells in Michigan. This is 
NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up on All Things Considered, Justice Department officials have announced an incident review of the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Their goal is to provide an independent account of law enforcement actions during the attack. That story is ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, increasing clouds with a chance of showers overnight. The lows will be around 62. We'll have a rainy day tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms. Some of those storms may produce some heavy rain. The highs will be around 71. Right now it's 79 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by WeNeedAVacation.com, specializing in vacation rentals for the Cape and Islands, where vacationers book directly with homeowners. WeNeedAVacation.com. And Tanglewood, presenting the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Boston Pops, guest artists, and more in the Berkshire Hills this summer. Details and performance schedule at Tanglewood.org. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, emotional testimony today from survivors and family members caught up in a recent wave of gun violence sweeping across the country. One of the victims of the Uvalde, Texas school shooting testified before a House committee. 11-year-old fourth grader Mia Cerillo said she's afraid to return to school. She survived the shooting last month and left 19 classmates and two teachers dead. Cerillo says she covered herself in another student's blood after the shooter began firing because she thought he was going to come for her, too. He shot my friend that was next to me, and I thought he was going to come back to the room, so I grabbed the blood and put it all over me. Today's hearing focused on proposed legislation in the wake of more than a dozen mass shootings in recent days. The Biden administration announced today it will phase out the sale of single-use plastics in national parks and federal lands. As NPR's Laura Benchoff tells us, this is part of a slate of actions to address ocean pollution and climate change. The world's oceans are rising and getting more hostile to life, due in large part to the increased concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. To mark World Oceans Day, the Biden administration announced a series of new policies. In one, the federal government began the process to protect marine life in the Hudson Canyon, a 100-mile underwater trench off the New Jersey coast. The Department of the Interior will also begin phasing out the sale of single-use plastics in national parks, wildlife refuges, and federal lands, and eliminating them by 2032. Tons of disposable plastic winds up in the ocean, and it emits greenhouse gases as it breaks down and interferes with sea life. Laura Benshoff, NPR News. Stocks finish lower across the board on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. There are delays and cancellations on the MBTA's Newburyport Rockport commuter rail line this evening. The T says a commuter train derailed near Beverly Station earlier this afternoon. The Transit Authority says the train was going at a slow speed over a switch when it derailed. The train remained upright. Ten people were on board. None were hurt. 
Trains from Newburyport and Rockport heading into Boston have been canceled until at least around 7 o'clock. Massachusetts House and Senate negotiators have reached an agreement on Beacon Hill on legislation addressing mail-in and expanded early voting, taking a step towards making those approaches permanent. The legislature had temporarily approved the changes two years ago in response to the pandemic. The compromise rejects same-day voter registration but allows registration to take place up to 10 days before an election. Current law requires voters to be registered 20 days in advance. The Senate is expected to vote on the compromise bill tomorrow. Massachusetts set a new record for overdose deaths last year. WBUR's Martha Biebinger has more on the numbers released by the Department of Public Health today. 2,290 people died after an overdose last year. DPH Commissioner Margaret Cook says that's 185 more lives lost than the year before. This very unfortunately is a 9% increase over 2020. And while 9% is significantly lower than the national trends, uh, it is problematic for Massachusetts and for our country. Cook says COVID stress is driving more substance use, as is fentanyl, a powerful opioid now found in fake pills, cocaine, and meth. Health leaders across the state say the numbers are a call to action. Governor Baker's proposed budget includes a half million dollars in new funding. It's not clear what the House and Senate plan to do. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Crystal, the very first on-ice experience from Cirque du Soleil. Now playing at Aganis Arena through Sunday. Tickets are available at CirqueDuSoleil.com. And Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. Increasing clouds with a chance of showers tonight. The lows around 62. Rainy day tomorrow. Showers and thunderstorms. Some of those storms may produce heavy rain. The highs will be around 71. Right now it's 80 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of a Lyme probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Two weeks after a mass shooting killed 19 students and two teachers at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, the U.S. Justice Department is on the case. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced a review of law enforcement's response to that shooting at a press conference in Washington today. The review will be comprehensive, it will be transparent, and it will be independent. NPR's Carrie Johnson was at the DOJ this afternoon, and she's here to give us details. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Sasha. The Justice Department is calling this a critical incident review. What is the goal here? The attorney general says his heart is broken over the loss of life in Uvalde, Texas. He says he knows the DOJ can't do anything to bring those people back. But Merrick Garland added this. But the independence um, uh, and transparency and expertise of the Justice Department can go a long way toward assessing what happened in Uvalde with respect to the law enforcement response and to giving guidance for the future. Uh, And that's what we're uh, here for today. Carrie, who will be leading this review? 
The lead is a guy named Rob Chapman. He's the head of the Office of Community-Oriented Policing at the Justice Department. But those folks at the so-called COPS office will be helped by a number of outside experts. That includes law enforcement executives who responded to a mass shooting in a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado years ago, and the Pulse nightclub shooting that killed 49 people in Orlando, Florida. That last one is a little controversial, since in the aftermath, police were criticized for not moving more quickly. It turned out some victims died from blood loss while they waited for authorities to bust into the nightclub. And of course, there are a lot of open questions about long delays at Robb Elementary School, too. Right. So many open questions. What are the next steps here? Well, uh, the attorney general says some reviewers are already on the ground in Texas. They're going to review documents like training manuals, look at all these videos that have come out. They're also going to interview law enforcement, school officials, and family members of the children and teachers. There's no set timetable for the review, but justice says they'll publish a written report when they're finished. The whole idea is to offer lessons learned and best practices for the future. So many parents and lawmakers have been calling for accountability in Uvalde. Is there any chance that this Justice Department review could result in criminal charges for anyone? I don't think so. This is not an FBI investigation, not a criminal investigation. The attorney general says the Justice Department is moving in here because of a request from the mayor in Uvalde. There's been some mixed messages about whether the Texas authorities are getting access to all the police they want to interview there, but Merrick Garland told reporters he's not worried about that. We have been promised, assured, and welcomed uh, with respect to cooperation by every level of law enforcement state, federal, and local. Uh, And we'll participate in that vein. We don't expect any problems. Now it would be a big story if law enforcement on the scene at Robb Elementary decided not to talk to the Justice Department. So let's all stay tuned there. Carrie, before you go, I understand the Attorney General had a message for Congress today. In a roundabout way, Merrick Garland says he'd be happy to work with lawmakers on Capitol Hill as they negotiate over new gun safety measures after the shootings in Texas and in Buffalo, New York. There are bipartisan efforts underway in Congress to develop some new proposals on guns, but it's just not clear whether Congress will accomplish anything, even though public opinion polls suggest voters would be open to things like expanded background checks. NPR's Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thank you. Happy to be here. Okay, is California done with lawns? Starting this month, millions of homeowners in the southern part of the state are under mandatory water restrictions. It is the third consecutive year of drought. No one knows if lawns will survive. Kaylee Wells from member station KCRW reports. The new rules only let Michael Lawson water his yard twice per week for just a few minutes. But he has no plans to comply. I am unapologetically a water user in this yard. He's standing in his yard under the shade of fruit trees. His grandfather planted them when he bought the house nearly 50 years ago. It's in a Los Angeles suburb. He gestures towards azaleas, dahlias, and the dogwood tree in the back. These plants aren't native to California. They grow better in the south, so they need lots of water to survive. If I sit here and I'm running my sprinklers, is someone going to come over and cuff me and take me away? Okay, probably not. Most residents aren't facing more than a fine if they don't comply. And Austin is prepared to pay extra to keep his lawn alive. He already pays $175 just to water it every month. He is holding tight to this 20th century symbol of wealth and the American dream. In fact, he's got plans to rip up the concrete driveway and put in more lawn. 
I grew up saying that you can judge a man by his lawn. So the lawn ain't going. You know, if you weren't with the program and building your turf, well, you know, you weren't actually living up to what it meant to be a man. Ted Steinberg wrote a book about the history of lawns. He teaches at Case Western Reserve University. He says judging a man by his lawn is a decades-old tradition. The end of World War II brought new housing developments, single-family tract homes surrounded by weed-free, bright green lawns. But it's no longer sustainable in places like Southern California. There's no question that the perfect lawn, as I've described it, is an ecological boondoggle. Angelinos are facing a decision over the fate of their yards. Can they cling to this 1950s ideal of American homeownership? That is not the question we should be asking, is how do, how do I keep this thing that does not belong here and for which there are not enough resources? Certified California naturalist Roger Gray calls lawns here unnatural. He sweeps flower petals from his stone walkway and gives a tour of his own yard. He re-landscaped about two years ago and replaced his lawn with drought-tolerant plants. His is an example of what a native southwestern yard can look and smell like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it smells wow. like mountains, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's watered these plants six times, total, in two years. And you're standing in here, and some of these plants are taller than you are. Yeah. Yeah, and we've had a drought. Gray isn't the only one doing this. The Metropolitan Water District in Southern California offers rebates to residents who replace their lawns with water-efficient landscaping. They've helped remove 200 million square feet of grass. Gray remembers previous droughts when people went so far as to spray paint their lawn green. This is not a solution, he says. And if the first time that there was a big drought and people had to paint their lawn green wasn't a wake-up call, and if the drought six years ago wasn't a, a nudge in the ribs, this is the, your last chance. You know, this is the moment where it's time to make the change. So far, only one water district in California is threatening to actually limit water for those who violate the rules. And the water restrictions don't apply everywhere. The lawns in Bel Air might start fading, but the lush green lawns lining the streets next door in Beverly Hills are safe for now. For NPR News, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles County. Earlier this year, cryptocurrencies were flying high. There were even Super Bowl ads featuring stars urging people to invest or miss out. Then, in May, crypto lost more than half a trillion dollars in market value over just a couple of weeks. Now there are increasing calls for oversight. We'll talk to senators from both parties about their legislation to regulate the crypto market. Listen on the next Consider This podcast from NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Palm trees and beaches and turquoise seas. That's what the islands of the South Pacific are probably best known for. But in recent days, their strategic value has come into the spotlight. China's foreign minister recently wrapped up a visit to eight Pacific island nations, and that has raised alarm in the U.S. and among its allies. NPR China Affairs correspondent John Ruwich reports. A big headline from Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi's trip was that it failed to secure a multilateral trade and security agreement between China and 10 Pacific Island nations. But Satu Limei, vice president of the East-West Center, says that misses a more important point. 
the real story here is not that China didn't get everything it wanted from this major diplomatic initiative. The real story is that China brought together such a major strategic and aspirational initiative into the Pacific. That's, to my mind, a very different Chinese strategy for the region. An ambitious strategy of engagement on multiple fronts, with more to come. This is, if you will, the next frontier. We've seen it in Northeast Asia. We've seen it in Southeast Asia. We've seen it in South Asia. While the multilateral agreement fell through, Foreign Minister Wang returned home with a briefcase full of fresh bilateral deals on things like infrastructure, tourism, climate change, and disaster mitigation. So if you just look at what was achieved, I think it's been a win-win situation for both the Pacific and China. Yati Yati is a political scientist at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. What you've seen is China has been able to tap into the interests that Pacific Island countries have really wanted to be heard on climate change, environment, agricultural development, infrastructure. Western countries, on the other hand, have historically had less focus on that, he says. Anna Poles with New Zealand's Massey University says that's been a major point of friction. There's been a deep frustration that their partners, particularly the United States and Australia, have talked to the Pacific countries about their concerns around strategic competition, about China, and yet Pacific countries have been deeply frustrated that their paramount security concern has not been acknowledged. After meeting Wang Yi in Suva last week, Fiji's Prime Minister, Frank Bainimarama, didn't mince any words. Geopolitical point scoring means less than little to anyone whose uh, community is sleeping beneath the rising seas, whose job has been lost to a pandemic, or whose family is impacted by the rapid rise in the price of commodities. That's not to say there are no worries among Pacific nations about Beijing's push into the region. The fate of China's proposed multilateral agreement made that clear. For the U.S. and its allies, concerns soared when China and the Solomon Islands signed a security cooperation deal in April. Some think it could pave the way for a Chinese Navy base there, a springboard in a region where the U.S. military has a big presence. But Patricia Kim with the Brookings Institution says the U.S. and its allies are starting to wrap their heads around the idea that their relationship with the Pacific Islands can't just be about China. And so there's been this effort to say that we're listening to the Pacific Islands. We want to work together on issues that matter to them. China's economic engagement, she says, could be a catalyst. I think in some ways this can be good for Pacific Island states because there's clearly been a boost of attention from around the world. And I think they can use this to their advantage. If China redoubles its efforts to forge security ties there, though, the West will inevitably react. And all that attention may be somewhat less of an advantage. John Ruich, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBURN, WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. 79 degrees in Boston at 548. Ahead on All Things Considered, the new album from Fantastic Negrito tells the true story of two of his ancestors who defied the laws of colonial Virginia to be together. That's ahead here on WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at 
easycater.com. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. In the forecast, increasing clouds with a chance of showers overnight tonight. Lows will be around 62 degrees. A rainy day tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms. Some of those storms may produce heavy rain. The highs will be around 71. Friday will be sunny and nice. The highs near 78 degrees. Mostly cloudy with a chance of rain on Saturday. A high 72. Same goes for Sunday. The high around 71 degrees. Right now, it's 79 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig. And Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Wicked, flying back to the Citizens Bank Opera House, June 8th through July 24th. Tickets are now available at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. Many Silicon Valley companies want their software engineers to live for their jobs, to believe the work is so important they can find a kind of transcendence. The workplace was the last meaningful institution standing. It was the institution that offered the best means for meaning, identity, belonging, and purpose. But is the office really the place to find a life's worth of fulfillment? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. About a year into the pandemic, the Grammy-winning musician Fantastic Negrito found a mysterious email in his inbox. I got a message and it was something like, I know your deep, dark family secrets. The sender claimed to be a relative of his and pointed him to genealogical records they had found. I discovered these links from Ancestry.com that basically changed my life forever. He followed the family tree back seven generations until he saw the name Elizabeth Gallimore. And as I read the document that came along with her name, it says, and I memorized this, Elizabeth Gallimore presented in Amelia County Court in 1759 for unlawfully cohabitating with a Negro slave belonging to Henry Jones. Gallimore was an indentured servant from Scotland, and she had fallen in love with an unnamed slave from a nearby plantation in Virginia. For Fantastic Negrito, it was a revelation that upended the way he thought about his family, his heritage, and his own identity. It also prompted him to write an entire album about the love between Grandma Gallimore and Grandpa Courage. That's the name he gave to his enslaved grandfather. The album is called White Jesus, Black Problems. What inspired me was that this felt like a Romeo and Juliet story of two people, opposite sides of the spectrum of the world, came together, defied the laws of the day, and fell in love. And I thought, wow, this feels like me. I feel like I understand myself more now from the story that I came from people that were outside of the box and defiant. So, I mean, this story about Betty Gallimore and Courage, it's an incredible story. And I'm just curious, like, how did you decide, I want to tell this story through music? Like, did that idea come to you right away? I felt like there was a train coming. And the train was going 100 miles an hour. And I thought, you either get on this train or this train runs you over. 
I just I felt like I just got on the train and it took me everywhere. It took me musically, songs. I mean, I think I must have done like 50 songs, and they, it just I stayed out of the way. Let it be as weird, funky, eclectic, psychedelic boots, whatever it's gonna be, man. That's each song is a chapter in this story, and I didn't have to do much work because my seventh-generation grandparents did all the work. All I had to do was just be a conduit and, and, and let it happen. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the different chapters. Um, there's one song in particular I want to ask you about. It's called Venomous Dogma. Can, can you just walk us through the way this song unfolds? I feel like Venomous Dogma, I remember writing that in about 10 minutes, and it was two different things happening, like this beautiful kind of psychedelic melody and then this hard stomping kind of Black Roots uh, blues anthem with a bunch of changes. And I thought of the beginning was represented freedom. Represented joy. Like the, one of the basic fundamental, you know, essentials of humanity is that we are free. And then that freedom is interrupted with indentured servitude and capture slavery. So that song, Contrast, I kept thinking on this record, Contrast represented the beauty of freedom and the, uh, the morbidity of enslavement and servitude and being captured. Well, I want to talk more about the love story between Betty and Courage. Um, yes. You mentioned earlier that you had found Grandma Gallimore's arrest record for, quote, unlawfully cohabitating with a Negro slave. What did that feel like to learn that she was branded a criminal for being with the man she loved? I didn't, you know, I felt very proud of her. Yeah. I felt very proud to be a descendant of this little Scottish woman as I have to imagine her in my mind. And I felt like, wow, again, like I, I understand myself. Why do I take uh, risks? Not that I took a risk anything compared to them, but just artistically and with growing up and always not feeling quite like I fit in. And the first half of my life was in the whitest town in America. The second half as a kid was in the blackest city in America, Oakland. So it was just, I really understood myself and I felt extremely fortunate and proud to be a descendant of such a courageous, bombastic, incredible yeah, union. defiant union. Defiant. This was like a punk rock moment in the 17th. This was, <laughs> I was like, this is it. Yeah. I was like, yeah, go ahead, uh, do Grandma it. and Grandpa, do it. So I said, I said, oh, Betty. When you were writing the song, Oh, Betty. Oh, Betty. What did you imagine about the connection between Courage and Betty? Well, well I was trying to be the voice of Grandfather Courage in it, and what he must have felt Maybe when they, I imagine they separated them. And maybe he was insecure as we can all be in love, especially the line that I wrote, you'll be free in seven years while I'm still bleeding. I wonder if you'll ever need me. And I thought that's a very um, human quality and a, a feeling of insecurity. Like, here's your white privilege, Betty. You'll be free. What are you going to do? Well, she chose love. You'll be free. And I thought, wow, this is a great way to, how can I honor that union 
and bring value and to that unit. I have a platform here and I'm going they're going to know about you, grandma and grandpa. They're going to know. How does the story of Grandma Gallimore and Grandpa Courage end? Like, what becomes of them? Fantastic Negrito and NPR. <laughs> That's a good question. I can't figure, I wasn't able to figure that out. Only thing I could see was that there was a guy named George Gallimore, one of their kids. That's who I came from. And then ends up being my great, great, great grandmother, Sarah Cousin. She marries William Wheeler. They, had, You know, maybe it doesn't end because I'm here and I have some kids, you know. I don't know why no one ever told me about this. My family, maybe they didn't know. Well, now you're telling the world about it. I'm telling the world. Yeah, and I'm very proud of it. Maybe it's an opportunity for us to all talk. And that's the great thing about being an artist, that, man, you can just make anything happen, you know? And I can take all the punches that I'm gonna take for the stories that I'd like to tell that are true, healing, beautiful love, and tragic and unfortunate, but we made it. And I think we're gonna make it, and that's what matters the most. Fantastic Negrito. His new album, White Jesus, Black Problems, is out now. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us. Thank you very much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Aspiration, a digital banking alternative designed for people who care about the environment. Customers can plant a tree with every swipe of their debit card to offset their carbon footprint. Aspiration.com green. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 79 degrees in Boston. Just a half minute before 6 o'clock. Coming up next on All Things Considered, survivors of the mass shooting at Uvalde, Texas, testified before Congress today in favor of legislation to address gun violence. That's just ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Survivors of the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, testified before Congress today in favor of legislation to address gun violence. Victims made emotional pleas for lawmakers to change gun policy. It's Wednesday, June 8th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead this hour, the Democrat-led House panel investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol will launch a series of hearings tomorrow night. 
We're going to use whatever resources we can to make the presentations as compelling as possible. It's a pretty dramatic story and it has to be told in a dramatic way. We'll take a look at what to expect from the hearings. And Sheryl Sandberg's departure from Facebook is the end of an era for one of the tech world's most prominent women. She's played a large role in the company alongside CEO Mark Zuckerberg. It's 601, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A Justice Department review of the law enforcement response in Uvalde, Texas, is underway. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports on calls for more information about the mass shooting that killed 19 students and two teachers. Attorney General Merrick Garland says hearts are broken over the loss of life at Robb Elementary School, but Garland says he hopes the critical incident review will help identify lessons learned and best practices for future mass shootings. Federal law enforcement experts are already on the ground in Texas. They plan to review documents, interview law enforcement officers, and consult with families of victims and survivors. The Justice Department has promised to make its findings public when its work is finished. The review is not a criminal investigation and will not result in any penalties for police. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Russian forces are continuing to bombard Ukraine's second largest city of Kharkiv. Even as the attacks continue, local prosecutors are out investigating possible Russian war crimes in that city. More from NPR's Ryan Lucas. In the months since Ukrainian troops pushed Russian forces back from Kharkiv, local investigators have been out collecting evidence of alleged Russian war crimes. That includes in the Saltivka neighborhood on the city's northeastern edge, where a team led by prosecutor Sergei Shotsu is interviewing residents. We are collecting shrapnel and Russian ammunition as evidence, Shotsu says. The serial numbers found on missile and rocket fragments can be traced back to military units, he says. And Russian prisoners of war have helped Ukrainian authorities identify which Russian units were involved in the shelling of specific neighborhoods. Ryan Lucas, NPR News. Kharkiv, Ukraine. The UN's nuclear watchdog group has overwhelmingly passed a resolution critical of Iran for failing to explain how traces of uranium were found at three undeclared sites. Members of the 35-nation Board of Governors meeting behind closed doors, where diplomats say just two countries, Russia and China, opposed the resolution, while three other members abstained. Forecasters are warning of slower economic growth in the U.S. and around the world. NPR's Scott Horsley reports on the economic fallout from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Both the World Bank and the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development are predicting sharply lower economic growth this year, thanks in part to the war in Ukraine, as well as ongoing fallout from the coronavirus pandemic. The OECD expects the U.S. economy will grow just 2.5% this year, less than half last year's pace. Global growth is also expected to slow to around 3%. U.S. consumers continue to spend freely, but more are spending borrowed money. Credit card debt and other revolving credit increased in April at an annual rate of nearly 20 percent. Revolving debt is now back to levels not seen since the start of the pandemic. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 269 points. The Nasdaq down 88 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Inbound trains on the Newburyport and Rockport commuter rail line are canceled until around 7 o'clock tonight. It's due to a low speed and upright derailment near Beverly. T officials say no injuries were reported. Ten passengers were on board at the time. Buses are running in place of the trains.
The Boston Public Health Commission is recommending the city's public schools no longer require students to wear masks indoors. In a memo, the head of the commission said Boston has seen a sustained downward trend in COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations over two weeks. The memo recommends lifting the mask mandate starting next week. However, it notes specific situations when masks should still be required, including in school health offices. The average price of regular gasoline in Massachusetts is now over $5 a gallon. and That has some people thinking twice at the pump. WBUR's Yasmin Amir reports. A gallon of gas costs $5.29 at this station in Brighton. Rachel Deinhardt says that's too much. I was literally just pumping gas thinking, do I fill up or do I just do half a tank? And I'm doing half a tank, five gallons. Deinhardt says her fiancé drives a lot for work. She worries about what high gas prices are doing to their budget. It's made us like save less money and kind of change our habits in other ways, like maybe going out to eat less and stuff like that. According to AAA, the average price of gas is the highest it's ever been in Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Tonight's Game 3 of the NBA Finals hasn't even tipped off at the Garden yet, but already a winner is being declared. Area bars and restaurants say the extended playoff run by the Celtics has been a boon to business. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports. On an ordinary Wednesday night in June, Porter's Bar and Grill in the West End has a staff of two. Tonight... Owner Scott Nagara says he's going to have 12 people working. I know that the crowd is going to be into it. I would be in a lot of phone calls, and so I think there's going to be a bunch of people in tonight. It's going to be a good busy night. Everybody's in a, in a good, positive mood. Everyone assumes that they're going to win tonight, so we'll see. Nagara says the extra business is good for his employees and good for his bottom line. He expects the bar to make five to six times as much money tonight as it normally would without a playoff game. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The forecast increasing clouds with a chance of showers overnight, low 62. Well, a rainy day tomorrow, the highs near 71 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by EBSCO, providing access to ebooks and research content on the go with the EBSCO mobile app. Information about EBSCO's commitment to researchers is at EBSCO.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington, where the horror that unfolded two weeks ago in Uvalde, Texas, played out at the U.S. Capitol as survivors of that tragedy testified today before Congress. Survivors including fourth grader Mia Surio, who pre-recorded her testimony. She went to go lock the door, and he was in the hallway, and they made eye contact. That's the 11-year-old describing the moment her teacher learned there was an active shooter in the building. She also explained what happened next. Then he shot the little window, and then he went to the other classroom. There's a door between our classrooms, and he went to there and shot my teacher and told my teacher goodnight and shot her in the head. And then he shot... Some of my classmates. One of those classmates was next to Mia. I thought he was gonna come back to the room. So I grabbed the blood and I put it all over me. Then she stayed quiet and called 911. Uvalde pediatrician Roy Guerrero described encountering Mia in the chaotic emergency room after the shooting. She was sitting in the hallway, her face was still Still clearly in shock, but her whole body was shaking from the adrenaline coursing through it. He said her white Lilo and Stitch shirt was covered in blood. 
And Guerrero, in graphic detail, told the committee what it was like to see children who have been shot by an AR-15. Two children whose bodies have been pulverized by bullets fired at them, decapitated, whose flesh had been ripped apart, that the only clue at their identities was a blood-splattered cartoon clothes still clinging to them, clinging for life and finding none. Roy Guerrero and Mia Surio were just two of many witnesses who testified today, but their testimony echoed others affected by gun violence, and all of them said they wanted the same thing. Thoughts and prayers and calls for more gun control isn't enough. But making sure our children are safe from guns, that's the job of our politicians and leaders. So at this moment, we ask for progress. But I wish something will change, not only for our kids, but every single kid in the world because schools are not safe anymore. That's Miguel Cerillo, Kimberly Rubio, Roy Guerrero, and Lucretia Hughes. They and several others testified before Congress today in favor of legislation to address gun violence. I want to bring in NPR congressional correspondent Kelsey Snell. She has been following all this on Capitol Hill today. Kelsey, hey. Hi. The pain you hear there. The pain these pa- these families are experiencing is so fresh. Uh, their calls for action are explicit. How was their testimony received? You know, there have been very different reactions depending upon where you are on Capitol Hill. In the House, Democrats called this hearing, and tonight they are approving legislation that would meet nearly all of President Biden's requests, like banning high-capacity magazines and raising the minimum age to buy semi-automatic weapons. In the Senate, they're really focused on bipartisan negotiations on a narrow set of changes to gun laws. Plus, there's the political divide. Most Republicans I've talked to say the shooting Uvalde is horrifying, but they don't think changing gun laws is the right answer. The thing is, it's not just Uvalde. Uh, This past weekend alone, 15 people, at least 15 people, were killed in eight states in mass shooting incidents. Uh, Of course, there was Buffalo just days before Uvalde. Is Congress, either House, looking at gun violence as a whole? You know, that is also part of the political divide. Republicans, even those working on the Senate negotiations on that narrow bill, are focused on Uvalde, not the broader question of gun violence in the country. And I should say, lawmakers also heard from families of the victims in Buffalo, like Zanetta Everhart, whose son Zaire Goodman was shot and wounded there. She described the shrapnel that remains embedded in her son's body as she pleaded for a ban on assault rifles. If after hearing from me and the other people testifying here today does not move you to act on gun laws, I invite you to my home to help me clean Zaire's wounds so that you may see up close the damage that has been caused to my son and to my community. I should say almost all of the victims in Buffalo were black, and Everhart talked about white supremacy, racism, and class as part of the gun violence problem in the U.S., But the efforts in the Senate are tightly focused on addressing the circumstances that led to Uvalde, not to mass shootings more broadly. You know, Republicans are specifically focusing on things like mental health and school safety and changes to the background check system tailored to avoiding another school shooting. And negotiators in the Senate want to get deal quickly. They say they're moving in a positive direction, but that means staying narrowly focused on the things that can get enough Republican support to get 60 votes in the Senate. 
you know, we talk a lot about these this very narrow focus mm-hmm. that Republicans want. Are, are all Democrats on board with these very narrow proposals? Well, part of the reason we know how many of these Republicans who are open to gun law changes feel is because they are actively part of those talks. When it comes to more liberal Democrats, most are just kind of leaving the door open. I caught up with Elizabeth Warren today, and she told me she's very aware that people want more, that she wants more. But this is how she's describing her thinking. If we're stuck between nothing and something, something is better. You know, nearly every Democrat I speak to is also talking about this as a key motivating factor in the upcoming midterm elections. They want this to be a thing that brings voters to the polls. They say more Democrats in Congress means broader, bigger action. A really emotional day of testimony there on Capitol Hill. Uh, And Pierce Kelsey Snell, thanks for being there and covering it for us. Thanks so much for having me. Now we're turning our attention to another set of hearings, the Democratic-led House Select Panel investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Tomorrow night, in prime time, the committee will launch a series of hearings to reveal its findings. Here's committee member Adam Schiff. We're going to use whatever resources we can to make the presentations as compelling as possible. You know, we need to get across the danger to our democracy, how close we came to losing it, how many multiple lines of effort that were to overturn the election, how close they came to succeeding. It's a pretty dramatic story, and it has to be told in a dramatic way. Committee members say they'll be telling the fuller story of the siege through videos and images released to the public for the first time. With us with details is NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales. Hi, Claudia. Hi there. What are you expecting to hear tomorrow? Well, this is going to mark the committee's opening arguments, if you will, a broad overview of their investigative findings since the panel was launched nearly a year ago last summer. It's built on interviews with more than 1,000 witnesses, and they've obtained more than 100,000 documents. We'll see two witnesses appear before the panel tomorrow, a Capitol Police officer, Caroline Edwards, who's on duty the day of the attack, and a second witness is filmmaker Nick Quested, who is behind a documentary that captured members of extreme right-wing groups on the day of the siege. And as we heard Schiff say there at the top, the panel is going to use whatever resources possible to make this a compelling presentation. And NPR has independently confirmed reporting that former president of ABC, James Goldstone, has advised the committee on this. And then there are more hearings later this month. How will those differ? Right. So we're hearing of six hearings total scheduled for this month while the House is in session for the next two and a half weeks. They're going to hit on some of the major topics that we've gotten sneak previews on, such as a more expansive view of former President Trump's pressure campaign to overturn the election's results, former Vice President Mike Pence and his team's efforts to try and stop that behind the scenes, as well as the lack of response by Trump during the attack for 187 minutes. And we should also get some insight into some of these high-profile interviews the panel conducted behind closed doors. That includes voluntary appearances by daughter and former White House senior advisor Ivanka Trump and her husband, Jared Kushner. For example, we now know she tried to intervene several times on the day of the siege. Donald Trump Jr. is another witness who also appeared before the committee, too. 
And those closed door interviews you just referenced, were those on camera? Will we ever see video of them? Yes, there is video. I talked to the committee's chairman, Benny Thompson, about that today. He said it's possible we will see that video of Ivanka Trump in one of these hearings this month. And then in addition to that, we could see other high profile former Trump White House officials testify in person. But to be clear, Thompson said the panel is still making some final decisions here so the plans could shift. What is the panel saying it hopes to accomplish? Well, members have said repeatedly they learned that democracy was under much more of a threat than many realize. So they're going to delve into this organized nature of the attack, as well as the wider conspiracy around it, including the fake elector scheme they expanded on and the money that funded the attack and the buildup to it. And sources tell us that that final hearing, for example, which is a little over two weeks away, will be co-led by two panel members, Virginia Democrat Elaine Luria and Illinois Republican Adam Kinzinger and could focus on the flow of disinformation. Now, neither would comment about that, but I did talk to Luria about what is planned this month. Our goal as a committee is to paint a very clear picture with a contiguous thread from what started even you know, before the election in November of 2020 and built up and ultimately culminated on January 6th with violence. But for the American people to understand all of the factors that went behind that, I think that the day of January 6th, it was a symptom of something much larger. And she added she hopes Americans understand that these dangers continue to persist even today. And Claudia, have any committee members said what is the end game? What do they hope to produce at the end here? Well, they're hoping to issue a final report later this year, perhaps in September, as well as a series of legislative recommendations. And we should note the panel is still interviewing witnesses and obtaining documents. For example, former Attorney General Bill Barr testified formally on Friday before the panel. So there's more evidence that could come in the next few weeks and months. That's NPR's Claudia Grisales. Claudia, thank you. Thank you much. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Ahead on All Things Considered, Sheryl Sandberg's departure from Facebook is the end of an era for one of the tech world's most prominent women and for the company which is attempting a transformation to the so-called metaverse. That's ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Landmark College for students who learn differently with online dual enrollment courses where high school students earn college credits. More at landmark.edu slash online. In business news, casino workers in Rhode Island want legislators to make a pandemic-era ban on smoking permanent. During normal times, casinos are exempt from a law that prohibits smoking in public places. Legislators are now considering a bill that would repeal that exemption. It has the support of workers at the Twin River Lincoln Casino and the Tiverton Casino and Hotel, both a part of the casino giant Bally's Corporation. A company spokesman says the company plans to address the workers' concerns during union negotiations. On Wall Street today, stocks closed lower. The Dow down 269 points, or eight-tenths of a percent, to close at 32,911. NASDAQ was off seven-tenths of a percent, or 89 points, close at 12,089. Marketplace will have all the day's business news coming up in about 10 minutes at 6.30 here on WBUR. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with The Light. A newly engaged couple faces long-buried secrets. Can they survive the truth? Now through June 26th. Tickets at LyricStage.com. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. In the forecast, increasing clouds with a chance of showers tonight. Lows will be around 62 degrees. A rainy day tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms. Some of those storms may produce heavy rain. The highs will be around 71 degrees. Right now it's 79 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR is going out on a limb, and we hope you'll join us. I'm Rupa Shanoi. We're eliminating a five-day on-air fundraiser this month so you can hear WBUR uninterrupted. But we still need to make our goal. Take a minute right now and give monthly at WBUR.org. That way we'll meet the goal, and you can still hear all the news and storytelling that brings us together. Give now, and thank you. On a Wednesday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. For 14 years, Sheryl Sandberg has been the grown-up at Facebook. She's the sophisticated foil to Mark Zuckerberg's hoodie-wearing whiz kid. She's the one who seemed natural testifying before Congress. Senators, let me be clear. We are more determined than our opponents, and we will keep fighting. This fall, she's leaving Facebook. It's the end of an era for one of the most prominent women in business and for the company now known as Meta. NPR tech correspondent Shannon Bond has more and a note, Meta pays NPR to license NPR content. Long before Sheryl Sandberg was known for lean in, there was another term people used when talking about her. Kim Scott worked for Sandberg at Google in the mid 2000s. Sheryl is really exceptionally talented at understanding how to scale businesses. Scale, that's Silicon Valley jargon for growing a business from a startup into a powerhouse. Sandberg herself reportedly once said she felt she was put on earth to scale organizations. And she did that, first at Google, where she helped build a massively profitable advertising business, then at Facebook. In a podcast interview, Sandberg said she discussed scale with Mark Zuckerberg for months before accepting the chief operating officer job in 2008. By the time we worked together, we had really talked about kind of who we were, what we believed in, what we thought the potential was of Facebook to scale, how we would scale. On her watch, Facebook became the dominant social network and defined the business of targeted advertising on smartphones, all built on the rich trove of what the company knows about its users. And last year, it became one of the world's most valuable companies. Facebook has joined the Trillion Dollar Club. It's now the fifth member of the exclusive group, along with Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google's parent company, Alphabet. But it's also created what critics deride as a digital surveillance system that feeds on people's personal data and fosters discrimination, misinformation, and violence. Rashad Robinson leads the racial justice group Color of Change. For years, we have been deeply concerned about the role that Facebook plays in our society, that Facebook plays in our democracy, the impacts on our communities, and those concerns only become deeper and deeper as the days, weeks, months, and years go by. 
And the central figure in Facebook's controversial business model is Sandberg. When Zuckerberg brought her on, he was a 23-year-old Harvard dropout known for the motto, move fast and break things. Sandberg was 38 and as comfortable in the halls of Congress as in corporate America, thanks to stints at the Treasury Department and consulting firm McKinsey. Once she published Lean In, her manifesto encouraging women to climb the corporate ladder, she became the global girl boss. For the people she mentored, like Kim Scott at Google, Sandberg was a firewall protecting her from office politics. She had been kind of a umbrella for me. In other words, she had shielded me and the other people that we worked with from a lot of political nonsense. At Facebook, Sandberg played that umbrella role publicly. She took charge of policy, communications, relationships with regulators and lawmakers. Zuckerberg once described it as the things he didn't want to do. Katie Harbath worked in public policy at Facebook until last year. She was in some ways very much, you know, a co-CEO you know, in external terms (laughs) with Mark. It was one of the few companies, I think, that if it was the White House or Congress or you name it, they were perfectly fine having Cheryl be representing the company and not necessarily having the CEO. But Sandberg's focus on being that shield for Facebook and Zuckerberg eventually became a major line of attack. She was accused of deflecting and denying big problems, from Russian interference in the 2016 election to the Cambridge Analytica data scandal to the January 6th Capitol riot. Harbath says those criticisms came from inside Facebook as well. Part of her legacy will certainly be the fact that those things need to be paid attention to a lot sooner to make sure they don't become really big problems before you're ready to handle them. As instrumental as Sandberg was in making Facebook what it is today, even critics say she should not be blamed for all the company's problems. Robinson of Color of Change is no fan of Facebook, but he credits Sandberg for her work on racial equity, including advocating for a civil rights audit. But as Robinson sees it, there was only so much Sandberg could do. At the end of the day, the company is controlled by Mark Zuckerberg, who is chairman and CEO and majority shareholder. Over the past year, Zuckerberg has renamed the company Meta to signal its shift in focus to the metaverse, an immersive virtual world. The CEO is now the same age Sandberg was when he hired her. And one thing is clear. While Sandberg shared in Facebook's successes and failures, the future of Meta belongs to Zuckerberg alone. Shannon Bond, NPR News. The school year is coming to an end, and teachers across the country are trying to do something special for their kids. For students at a Montana school, a local end-of-year field trip means a visit to Yellowstone National Park. Jess Sheldahl with Yellowstone Public Radio reports. As she hikes her students down a forested trail, high school biology teacher Kim Popham says she's seen how current events are affecting them. Mental health-wise, it's pretty bad. Our kids are struggling, and they get stressed out so easy. Little things trigger a lot more so than ever before. Popham thinks getting kids outdoors helps, and Yellowstone is just 90 minutes from her school in Belgrade, Montana. All those hot springs out there and the microbial life that most likely is in them is... I mean, it's just, I don't know, it's cool to me. I always tell them this is the trip of a lifetime. 
<laughs> Popham used to do research inside the park and is taking them across boardwalks on the Fountain Paint Pot Trail. Hot water erupts from the earth in bubbling and steaming pools that make the landscape look otherworldly. So the mud pots are like very blue. I always say they're very bloopy. Bloop, bloop, bloop. Because you have some gas coming up through that that's just coming up through the uh, mud and it makes a cool sound. On the way into the park, students Ryland Schaefe and Autumn Eastwood say they're into it. They've just finished stressful advanced placement tests. So we're just like a little... <laughs> yeah, and the hiking and outdoors oh, part yeah. is going to be so sick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, National parks are just really cool. Bob Furming, coordinator of Yellowstone's educational programs, says the park, with its abundant wildlife, is a great place to relax and escape school-related stress. Students who might have trouble in the classroom excel in the outdoors many times. So giving them a chance to excel and feel good and build their confidence about themselves really is great. So that's, that's not what we're teaching. That's just what this place is able to teach. Biology teacher Kim Popham has been leading students on field trips to the park for 10 years now. She says she's seen Yellowstone bring students a lot of joy. I ask a lot of these guys and they rise to the occasion and they kill it. They do so much work for me and it's just fun to see them laugh and relax and have fun and realize how much they actually learned. For NPR News, I'm Jess Sheldahl in Billings, Montana. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Worcester Polytechnic Institute, whose research approach is like nowhere else, meaning their impact solves problems in ways others don't. WPI.edu slash future. Mass TLC, the region's leading technology industry group, helping business leaders get connected, gain visibility, and drive business impact. More at masstlc.org. And The Cabot in Beverly with Tommy Emanuel, often regarded as one of the greatest acoustic guitar guitarists of all time, Saturday, June 18th. Tickets at thecabot.org.